This is Science by the Slice, a podcast from the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences Center for Public Issues Education. In this podcast, experts discuss the science of issues affecting our daily lives, reveal the motivations behind the decisions people make, and ultimately provide insight to solutions for our lives. Welcome to Science by the Slice. I'm Philip Stokes. Former U.S. Senator Justin Smith Morrill of Vermont is by no means a household name today. However, his legacy is vast and lasting and can be felt in every state in the U.S. He proposed the Land-Grant College Act of 1862. In short, the Morrill Act, as it's more commonly known, was a visionary piece of legislation that created many new universities and reshaped the way Americans thought about higher education. Morrill himself was an unlikely author of an education bill, having never attended any college, but it was his lack of access to higher education that inspired him to draft this legislation in hopes of expanding opportunities of education as wide as possible. And I think those last four words, as wide as possible, are important to remember, because even after this act, higher education was still restricted to white males. Now, of course, Americans' views of who is represented within our citizenry have expanded over time to account for ethnicity, race, class, gender, and other demographics, and therefore the demography of land-grant universities have changed as well, and continue to do so. In this series from Science by the Slice, we're going to explore how leaders at the University of Florida, and more specifically the Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences, or IFAS, are addressing some of the cultural realities at land-grant universities, including cooperative extension and the constituents they serve. This series is made up of conversations with a larger goal to continue civil dialogue to foster greater understanding of topics such as diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice. I certainly recognize that conversations about race and other issues related to human differences can be very difficult and trigger strong emotions. I do believe that these conversations are vital to understanding one another, and understanding is vital to healing and enduring change. In this episode, I speak with Carl Van Ness, the official historian at the University of Florida. Carl and I discuss how land-grant universities were formed, who they were formed to serve, and what we can learn from the past to create a future in higher education that serves a greater, more diverse, and inclusive population. Carl Van Ness, it's so great to have you on the Pi Center's podcast, Science by the Slice, uh, to talk with you today. So uh, I just want to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your position at the University of Florida. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure uh, to speak with you. My name is Carl Van Ness, and I am an archivist in the George A. Smathers Libraries in the Department of Special and Area Studies Collections. Uh, I've been here since 1985. I have done a variety of things over the years as, as an archivist in this department, uh, worked with a number of collections. My uh, primary role right now is as the Florida Political Papers Archivist. I also serve as the official historian of the university, and uh, that is why I'm speaking to you today. 
Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, 1985. So that's that's incredible and a lot of perspective there. So yeah, I really um, I'm looking forward to talking with you about our topic for today. And of course, we're talking about the history of land grants and specifically about the university's land grant. Um, and also we're going to be getting into how that impacts diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And kind of looking at that from a historical perspective and thinking about the past, the present, and the future and all of that. So um, as a historian, of course, we'll, we'll start asking you about the past. So just first off, uh, what is a land-grant university and how was the University of Florida established in this way? Well, we uh, typically define the land-grant universities as those being tied in some way to the Morrill Acts of uh, 1862 and 1890. And then there are a bunch of other acts that followed the, uh, the first uh, Morrill Acts, and they're also considered uh, land-grant acts. Uh, however, the expression land-grant university is tied specifically to the Morrill Act of 1862, as it was the first of the acts, and it was the only one that involved the granting of land to support higher education. I should also note that some of the designated land-grant colleges came into being long after the Morrill Acts, uh, Hawaii and uh, Alaska, for example. Uh, today, we have land-grant colleges that serve indigenous populations. So the concept of the land-grant college has been broadened over the years. The land came from federally owned properties. If a state had sufficient unutilized federal lands within its borders, the state could select federal lands there. Most states, though, did not, including Florida, and most states selected lands available elsewhere, uh, mostly from the American West. Uh, those lands tended to be lands that had either been expropriated from indigenous people or purchased from them at absurdly low prices. Uh, and in some cases, uh, Native Americans were still fighting over that land. Uh, each state received 30,000 acres of land for each congressional representative based on the 1860 census. In the case of Florida, it was the minimum amount as Florida had only its two senators and also one member of the House. So that's 90,000 acres. Of course, in 1862, Florida did not receive any land as, as it was not part of the United States of America. It was part of the Confederate States of America. However, once the Civil War ended, Florida and the 10 other former Confederate states were permitted to acquire their land grants. Uh, Florida did so in 1872, but it was not until 1874 that the land transaction was completed. This timing was rather poor as it followed the Panic of 1873, which was a catastrophic national economic depression that resulted in plummeting land values. So the state of Florida's land grant is the smallest it can possibly be. Uh, Florida invested its money, which was $100,000, in state bonds. Uh, the investments were required to yield a minimum of 9%, so Florida's annual income came to about $9,000 annually. Uh, clearly, that's not enough to support an actual college. Uh, the original land-grant college in Florida was the Florida Agricultural College, which opened its doors in 1884 in Lake City. It was the first college of any type in Florida and was followed by uh, Rollins College in 1885 and Stetson University in 1891. So 40 years uh, after uh, statehood, the state of Florida finally has uh, a college. For the first 15 years, the Florida Agricultural College received very little support from the state of Florida. Its operating budget came almost exclusively, exclusively from the land-grant endowment, 
and then later federal acts. It wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century that the state provided any meaningful funding. So you said it was, I'm just going to summarize a couple of things. Um, So 1862 was that first Morrell Act. But of course, you said the University of Florida... Shoot, what was it? The um, the Agricultural College? The Florida was... Agricultural College, yeah. Okay, that was 1884? Yes, it opened in 1884. 1884, okay. And we were the last, we were the last of the southern states to actually open a, a land-grant facility. From what I've heard, the University of Florida kind of touts itself on being <laughs> one of the older land grants, but, but you're saying it's not yeah. that way? Well, uh, we, we trace our roots back to the East Florida Seminary. Uh, okay which yep. was founded in Ocala in 1853. That school never became an actual college. Um, it, it was primarily uh, a prep school, a publicly funded prep school. It was later moved to Gainesville after the Civil War. And, um, but it never uh, attained a collegiate status, unlike the West Florida Seminary in Tallahassee, which became the Florida State College in 1901. And then became later the State College for Women, and is now FSU. Right, right, okay. But we both, both institutions trace their roots back to the seminaries. Interesting, interesting. So thinking more about the Morrell Act, why was it important at that time? It was a senator, you said? Yeah, Justin Smith Morrill, who was from the state of Vermont. Vermont. So why did he think it was important to create this? Who was it created for? And just why, why were federal lands and lands designated for higher education at that time? Well, the land-grant colleges were intended to serve a broader population than other colleges of the, uh, the mid-19th century. The act itself refers to the children of the industrial classes, or as Senator Morrill called them, the sons of toil. Land-grant colleges were required to provide a curriculum that included instruction in the practical arts of agriculture and engineering in conjunction with the liberal arts. In other words, this is not purely a vocational education designed to produce a better farmer or mechanic. Uh, we already had those kind of schools uh, in the mid-19th 18, mid 18th century, but rather it was intended to f- create a farmer or mechanic who has also been exposed to history, uh, political science, literature, languages, a- in order to fashion a more productive and engaged citizen. Initially, Florida's land-grant college was limited to white males. It admitted white women in 1894. Then in 1903, uh, it became the University of Florida. And then after the passage of the Buckman Act of 1905, which was not a land-grant act, it's a state act, uh, the campus was moved to Gainesville and again restricted to white males. Uh, we did not become co-educational until 1947, and we did not admit an African-American student until 1958. And then we went through this very long period of nominal integration that lasted well, well into the uh, 1970s. So in Florida and in the South overall, not everyone benefited from the land-grant movement. It was constricted by the racial laws of the South and in Florida by laws prohibiting the admission of women. So the Morrell Act was explained to be for the common man, right? But the common man at this time, like you said, was well, the way it was defined at the time, a white male with any type of um, economic status? Uh, Land-grant institutions were very democratic in their uh, uh, in, in missions. Uh, in the state of Florida, 
again, we're restricting this to white men, but any white male uh, with a high school diploma uh, could attend the University of Florida. And there was no tuition uh, during the early history uh, of the university. So it's a very democratic institution in that sense. Uh, again, considering uh, the social constraints of the time, uh, we were talking about the period of segregation in the Jim Crow era. But the, uh, the, the Morrill Act uh, certainly succeeded in its intended impact. Uh, more students from different social classes attended college after the Civil War. But it's really not until after the two world wars that enrollments increased significantly. Prior to World War I, uh, enrollment at the University of Florida uh, stood at about 500. Then within a few years after the war, we were at 1,000. And then it continued to rise until the next war. Then World War II, brought uh, what's commonly known as the GI Bill uh, into, be, into place, and then enrollments at the University of Florida and other land-grant institutions skyrocket. Land-grant colleges, more so than other types of colleges, benefited from the post-war booms because of their emphasis on engineering and the hard sciences, which were job applicable. These were the kind of professions that uh, students wanted to get into. They wanted to go into engineering or maybe chemistry and then immediately leave the university with a job. So sorry, it wasn't agriculture that attracted the students. Uh, there were very few students uh, in the College of Agriculture. Interesting. So yeah, you've you made it sound like, okay, at the beginning it was yeah, maybe there was an agricultural emphasis, but those colleges already existed. This was more of that liberal arts education getting uh, a broader perspective. And then later on, like you said, it was math and sciences and things like that that attracted students. Well, the, the, the intent was always to have uh, people attend the agricultural stu uh, the school and uh, um, but it, it attracted very few farmers. But agriculture, though, has its big impact on research, not undergraduate enrollment. And so the passage of the Hatch Act of 1887, which is another land-grant act, again, there's no land involved, uh, it created a nationwide network of agricultural experiment stations, and this has a radical impact on higher education. So the idea that colleges would engage in research that was intended to have a direct application in society, that was unheard of at the time. So also included in the mission of a land-grant institution is the concept of service. And this was a very important uh, part of the, the land-grant mission. Almost from the very beginning, land-grant uh, colleges were intended to uh, not only uh, graduate uh, students who came from uh, classes that previously did not attend uh, colleges, but also to bring their knowledge to the population, to, to uh, the general population. So we see various acts being passed uh, by Congress to uh, broaden that concept, uh, including the Smith-Lever Act of 1914. But even before that, uh, the land-grant institutions were uh, going out into the uh, the farmlands and bringing their uh, new technology and new uh, uh, agricultural innovations to farmers. And at first, this was restricted to agriculture, later was broadened to general extension. Uh, this was known most commonly as the Wisconsin Plan. It was the idea of President Charles Van Heys at the University of Wisconsin that uh, that university should serve the state of Florida, I mean, state of Wisconsin, in uh, and, and a much more, in a broader way, and to take all of the, all of its research and make it available to the state to provide educational opportunities uh, to the citizens. 
so that idea of service, um, I mean, I think that is certainly is very pervasive in our footprint today in IFAS specifically. You know, I can talk about that, you know, personally, but I know in, in other land-grant u- universities as well. I mean, we, you know, here in IFAS, we say what solutions for your life. And so a lot of the research and the work and the extension that you mentioned and the education, yeah, that is for, um, it's for everyone. It's for Floridians and globally as well. You know, today, of course, it's what we do. It's what we do in chemistry. It's what we do in engineering, the medical sciences, computer sciences. But it all began with agriculture. And it was the agricultural experiment stations that would stamp the identity of the land-grant college as the uh, you know, proverbial cow college, because there really were cows and pigs and horses on the campus. You know, We have lots of photographs in the university archives with, uh, that depict uh, animals of uh, various kinds. Uh, and in the background, you'll see the uh, university auditorium. Basically, anything south of uh, Newell Drive was uh, given to uh, agricultural pursuits. Of course, today, it's not the case. But, uh, you know, most of the research is done at uh, the branch facilities uh, around the state. But in those days, clearly, it was done on campus. Yeah, no, we were talking before, and I mentioned that the building that I'm in now is an old barn. It's It's a converted barn into now office space, and it was a mule barn. And we have some old photos, not a lot, but of what it looked like, you know, I don't know, close, I don't know, maybe 75 years ago, close to 100 years ago. So I want to go back to what you were saying at the beginning about the land. So you said it was in this original land grant act, it was federally owned land, but then some of it was taken. So let's think about, you know, am I being too direct when I say taken or is that from yeah, that, was, that, that was, might have that, been? That was often the case. Um, in some cases, the land is um, simply expropriated. Okay. Um, um, and there's been studies done on where this, the lands existed uh, we did not receive actual land. What we received was scrip, and uh, that scrip could come from any number of states. Most of our scrip came from Western states. Some, some came from uh, from California, uh, other states. I <laughs> can't remember which states, but uh, and in some cases, you could tie that land to a specific indigenous group. As well, a little bit back, you said in, in 1958 was the first year that um, African-American students were admitted into the University of Florida. Were there any other specific acts or passing the items passing in Congress that allowed for the university to be more accepting? Well, before, before 1958 and before integration here, the, the second Morrill Act of 1890 uh, attempted to remedy some of the shortcomings of the first Morrill Act. Uh, particularly in regards to finances. So the second Morrill Act provided direct cash payments to the states instead of land, because you know they, they saw clearly there was a problem here. Florida's land endow- endowment was very small, and New York's is very little, rather large. So with the second Morrill Act, every state received the same amount of money. It was a cash, cash payment. However, states that refused to admit black students were required to split the money with a designated school for African-Americans. Now, it's clear when you look at the debates and discussions concerning the uh, historically black land-grant colleges that it was never the intent of the Second Moral Act to create a parallel system of black colleges. It was understood both within the South and outside the South 
that the designated land grants for African-American students would be inferior to the white colleges. In fact, they would not be colleges at all, not, not initially at least. So uh, Florida A&M University, which was called the State Normal and Industrial School when it was designated the Black Land Grant in, in 1890, did not offer college-level courses until 1909 and only achieved provisional accreditation in 1931 and then full accreditation in 1935. Even then, the course offerings were far more limited than those at the University of Florida or even the State College for Women, for that matter. It also heightened tensions between black educators and the white politicians who ran the southern states in those days. Uh, FAMU began its history not as a land-grade institution, but as a normal school, that is a teacher's college. And there was a crying need for black teachers and teacher training at that time. The Second Moral Act, on the other hand, stressed vocational training in the limited vocations that were open to African-Americans in the South. So instead of engineers, the black land-grant schools were producing brick masons and cobblers. And slowly, these vocational courses, rather than the coursework that teachers needed, began to dominate the curriculum at black land-grant schools. And this was met with considerable resistance by black administrators, by their faculties, and by the students who attended the schools. In 1921, Nathan Young was fired as the president of the Florida A&M because he resisted efforts to limit the curriculum there. And that in turn set off a rather dramatic student uprising that saw the torching of several campus buildings. It's remarkable to me that the black uh, land-grant schools made the progress they did during the period of Jim Crow, given the obstacles that were thrown in their way. So there was, like you said, clear intention to kind of uh, suppress the progress of historically black colleges and universities. Is that correct? That would be correct. Uh, there was a very clear intent. The actions that precipitated the firing of uh, Nathan Young uh, occurred after Kerry Hardy was elected governor and uh, the Board of Education, the Florida Board of Education, passed a series of re resolutions basically saying that any student at Florida A&M had to participate in vocational education, regardless of whether they wanted to or not, and they had to perform labor for free. So, yeah, uh, and that precipitated uh, uh, the revolt that occurred later. Given, you know, you've mentioned the Jim Crow era laws, and were the foundings of some of these universities um, mandated from the federal government and more resisted in certain areas? Yeah, I, I don't see that there was a lot of resistance on the part of the South to create separate institutions. In fact, it was a, it was Southern members of Congress who actually uh, urged the creation, uh, uh, made the decision to split the money. But uh, it was never their intention to have these schools be in any way, shape, or form on a par with uh, the land-grant institutions for white students. So what would you say has changed over time with land-grant universities, what has happened since 1862 with that first Morrell Act for land-grants to become um, more inclusive and looking at equity, inclusion, and, um, and justice as well? Well, I don't, I don't know that the missions of uh, land-grant universities per se have changed over, over the years. Rather, all universities have changed. You know, we're, every university in the country practically is taking part in this discussion on race and diversity. And of course, this movement is ongoing. Uh, we haven't arrived at the final destination. Um, at least I hope we haven't. <laughs> we still have a way to go. 
historically, these changes have come in spurts, uh, usually precipitated by an event or a movement. More recently, Black Lives Matter has again has us again looking at our racial past. Uh, in the university's past, uh, a demonstration known as Black Thursday, which occurred on April 15th, 1971, was a watershed event. So on that day, uh, about 60 African-American students staged a uh, sit-down strike in President O'Connell's office, making a list of demands, and their primary demand was that the University of Florida finally address this, uh, the issue of uh, admissions and uh, make a, a greater effort to uh, enroll uh, black students. At that time, there were probably less than 500 African-American students at the University of Florida. The students were all arrested, and uh, as a result of uh, this turmoil, um, the university finally began to to look at what it was doing or what it, what it wasn't doing and began to make uh, uh, changes in, uh, in terms of affirmative action. Uh, Black Thursday also occurred in, in the midst of other social movements. So this is the same period when college students are demanding to be heard, when we see the first stirrings of the gay rights movement. And this is when women are opening doors to professions that had previously been monopolized by men including a lot of those we associate with, associate with the land-grant mission in agriculture and engineering. Uh, women were never prohibited from attending engineering classes. In fact, the first woman to graduate from a public college in Florida, Daisy Rogers, received her degree in engineering. But there were very few places where a woman could find employment as an engineer. But all of that is beginning to change in the, in the 1960s and 1970s. Yeah, um... It does seem to be the formula for, for changes comes from those grassroots movements, right? It's from the people, right? It's, it's more bottom up, right, than, than top down. Is that, has that kind of happened in colleges and universities as well? Absolutely. Change uh, has always come as a result of people making demands. <laughs> so what do you think the past reveals to us um, when thinking about colleges and universities? Things that we can learn and apply today and in the future as, as we shape the University of Florida and other land-grant universities? That's a good question. Uh, I think that's a very complicated question. Uh, I think there's a number of things involved here, uh, and it goes beyond the University of Florida. There's a book that was recently published. Uh, it's called The State Must Provide, written by Adam Harris. And he notes that the historically black land-grant colleges today continue to graduate a disproportionate number of African-American students, yet they still receive a small fraction of what the historically white colleges receive. And this is something that the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities has acknowledged. So, so why are they still, why are these universities still considered third-tier institutions by resource allocators? You know, we know why they were in the Jim Crow era, but what is the rationale now? Ironically, Integration became the rationale for not funding the black universities. FAMU is our third oldest state university. It was founded in 1887, uh, shortly after the founding of the land-grant college. And uh, you, you wouldn't know that by its funding today. I mean, we'd, he makes a very convincing argument that these schools should be funded on, uh, uh, in the same way that other universities are funded. But uh, we, we also have to look at the land-grant mission itself. And does the land-grant mission still perform, did the land-grant university still perform their mission? Uh, the premise of the Morrill Act was inclusion. You know, those that, you know, couldn't previously attend a college now could. 
uh, and, and this democratic characteristic of the land grant was something that was regularly touted by educational leaders of the, of the 19th and 20th century. Uh, for the first 50 years, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Florida was open to any white student with a high school diploma and there was no, no tuition. That eventually proved to be impractical and some restrictions had to be put in place. But overall, admission to the University of Florida was still relatively easy until recently. And that's not true anymore. We've become exclusive. We even hear the term public Ivy League. I mean, this is not what Vermont Senator Justin Morrill intended. That is an interesting thing to think about if these, if the land-grant universities were founded with the idea of a democratic movement, inclusivity. I mean, maybe that is thinking about the present and the future. That's what we look to. We say, hey, look, this is how these land grants were established. You know, we had a different mindset of what who that would include at that time, but we can use that same structure today to open that up a bit more broadly. I, I think we can. Uh, I don't know that that's what's going to occur, but uh, we seem to be, you know, moving away from the original mission. But, you know, institutions evolve. This one certainly has, and it'll continue to change. No one in 1884 would have predicted the type of land-grant university that exists today. Uh, I really don't have any idea what the future holds. <laughs> When I talk to students today, I always remark that this is not the University of Florida that their parents might have attended, if in fact their parents did attend the University of Florida. I came here in the mid-1980s, and the changes are incredible. Uh, some of the changes are driven by technology and some by social change. Change is inevitable. It's not always good, but it's inevitable. And uh, this, this institution will continue to evolve, and hopefully for the better. This concludes the first episode of our four-part series titled Extended Dialogue. I want to thank Carl Van Ness for being a guest on Science by the Slice. Be sure to listen to our next episode in the series with Dr. Andre Johnson. That episode is available now. I want to thank everyone involved with Science by the Slice. Michaela Kanzer, Rachel Rabin, Valentina Castano, Sydney Honeycutt, Ricky Telk, Ashley McLeod-Morin, and Elena Poulin. I'm Philip Stokes. Thanks for listening to Science by the Slice.